Welcome to the Russian Rulers Podcast, episode number 17, Ivan IV, the youthful warrior. Last week we saw the coronation and wedding of Ivan and the aftermath of the devastating fires of Moscow. Because of the fires, the Glinskys were no longer at the head of the government. Sylvester, the mystic religious man, was now acknowledged as being Ivan's chief advisor with another when Alexei Adeshev, being the head of the Chosen Council, which was a small group of advisors that helped run the government for Ivan. Both Adeshev and Sylvester, while not entirely virtuous, were almost completely incorruptible and were highly intelligent with a deep concern for Russia and its people. They were to be Ivan's right-hand men for a number of years. Others in the council included Prince Andrei Kurbsky, Prince Ivan Mstislavsky, Ivan Shermeritev the Elder, Ivan Shliladin, Ivan Viskovati, and Mikhail Morozov. What was different about this council, as opposed to ones in other regimes, was that most of the men were relatively young, in their early thirties. They were vital, though, in this period, because the times were tough, because of a series of bad harvests, and the growing Tartar raids on the breadbasket of Russia. The Tartar menace, the remnants of the Golden Horde, and Genghis Khan's mighty army were ravaging the countryside, enslaving captured Russians, much to the dismay and irritation of the ruling class boyars, but delivering sheer terror to the peasants. There were three main Tartar strongholds that Ivan had to deal with, the Crimean Horde, and the ones at Astrakhan and at Kazan. They were all at odds with each other, which made it almost impossible for them to mount a coordinated attack on Moscow. This was to save Russia from falling under their control again, as together it is unlikely that Moscow could have withstood their army's combined might. The first one Ivan set his sights on was Kazan, which was just a few hundred miles from the important Russian city of Nizhny Novgorod. But first... Ivan had to tend to the marriage of his deaf-mute brother Yuri to the daughter of Prince Dmitri Paletsi, when Princess Ulyana, on November 3, 1547. Two interestingly missing people were the groom's grandmother and uncle, Anna Glinskaya and Prince Mikhail Glinsky, who thought that in the commotion surrounding the, we the wedding, they could flee to Lithuania along with Prince Toranti Pronsky. Ivan, though, had a very well-developed secret police, one that would be a hallmark of Russian leaders to the present day. Nearing the border of Lithuania, they realized that they were trapped by forces led by Prince Peter Shuisky, so they turned around and headed back to Moscow, hoping to reach Ivan in time to plead their case. When they reached the capital, they were all arrested. We hear nothing more about Ivan's grandmother, Anna, but it is likely he spared her life and sent her to a nunnery. Princes Glinsky and Pronsky were tried for treason, found guilty, and sentenced to death. Metropolitan Macarius pled for their lives, which Ivan granted, but they both lost all their holdings, which were vast, to Ivan. Now to deal with the Tartars. The first foray against the Kazanite Tartars was undertaken in December of 1547 
led by Prince Dmitri Belsky, but it got bogged down by unseasonably rainy weather. Ivan led a second army right behind Belsky's, but they too were stopped by the inclement weather. Finally reaching Nizhny Gunovgorod, on January 26, 1548, they were unable to cross the Volga River because of instead of being its usual frozen self, it was free-flowing and only had a thin layer of ice. They returned to Moscow. Later that year, though, Prince Belsky's army was able to engage and crush Khan Safagure's Kazanite army on the plains of Arsk, near Kazan, which was to signify the first big battle won under the reign of Ivan. At this juncture, Ivan and his chosen council started putting together a series of reforms of the legal system, known as the Sudebnik. Reform ideas came from what some call the Russian version of the parliament, the Zemsky Sabor. Although there was no real power in the hands of these members of the educated elite, many of the most educated came from the priesthood, as these were the ones most likely to be learned within Russian society. These were the ones who also had a connection with the peasants and working class, who were being taken advantage of by the boyars, to the detriment of Russia as a whole. The chosen council took up debate on the reforms, some of which had rather little chance of passage, such as stopping the sale of all alcohol, which likely would have led to a mass rebellion knowing the Russian people. And another proposal which failed was called for the forbidding of the manufacture of knives with sharp points. In all, many reforms were proposed and few implemented, but judicial changes did pass, which helped to, for the first time since Ivan the Great, codify law and procedures on dealing with disputes and people who break the law. This Sudebnik, as it was called, took the power away from the whims of the aristocracy and set down a system that made the participation of the people of the community more important. It also created a system for the peasant to leave their feudal lord's lands. It required two payments, a pohiloi and a povoz, to gain freedom. This, of course, was made difficult by either limiting the amount of the money that a peasant would receive in return for work, or by making the payments too high to be reasonably accessible. Nonetheless, these changes subtly changed the nature of Russian society. Ivan also created a standing army, one that was always available to the Tsar, known as the Streltsy. These men were recruited from the free population, such as tradesmen and people in rural communities. The job was a hereditary one and lifelong position. There were times when getting volunteers for the Streltsy was difficult, but they were able to gather up to 55,000 of them by the latter part of the 1600s. There were two groups of Streltsy, the municipal, Ogorovsky, and the electives, or the Vibrovny. I will go into further detail about the Streltsy in a slapshot episode when we get closer to the time of Peter the Great. With the reforms coming out, Ivan needed to address the people, which he did on March 3, 1549. He assured the boyars the day before that he would just wipe the slate clean and forget the abuses he and his brother endured during his youth. He said, I have no rancor against any of you, but you must not do these things in the future. Ivan then went to the Red Square and climbed onto the Lobnoya Mesto, 
a stone platform which represented the highest point in the area, a traditional spot for speeches. He turned to Metropolitan Macarius and asked for his blessing, and said to the gathered crowd, I was very young when God took away my father and mother, the powerful boyars and nobles, who wished to rule over the country, failed to look after me. In my name they acquired high rank and honors, and enriched themselves unjustly, and oppressed the people, and there was no one to stop them. In my poor childhood I appeared like someone deaf and dumb. I did not listen to the groans of the poor, and being isolated from affairs I did not reprimand the evil ones. This was the prepared part of the speech. He then turned to the boyars in what has been reported as an off-the-cuff comment, which went like this. You were corrupt and rapacious, fabricators of false justice. And what answer will you give now? How many tears and how much blood has been shed because of you? I am guiltless of these crimes, but God's judgment awaits you. The crowd was elated and cheered because the Tsar was on their side against the oppressive boyars and nobles who always seemed to care about their own self-interests over the people. He continued on at length, but it's the last two sentences of his speech that bodes poorly for the future of the boyars. Concerning all these matters, I shall be your judge and protector in the future. I shall stamp out these wrongdoings and I shall return to you all that has been taken from you. He was warning the boyars that all was really not forgotten, and that he would make right where wrongs were done. With all the changes happening, the real excitement emanating from Ivan was the fact that his wife Anastasia was pregnant. She gave birth to a daughter, christened Anna, on August 10, 1549. Much celebrating went on for a child who, like many of that time, was to live for less than one year. In early 1550, another attack was planned on Kazan, but as was the case previously, weather turned against the Russian army, but this time with many freezing to death because of a much colder than normal winter storm. While retreating, Ivan decided to build a fortress near Kazan called Sviatchisk, to antagonize the Tartars. The town soon became known as a veritable den of iniquity, with drunken parties and debauchery going on, much to the chagrin of Ivan and Metropolitan Macarius. Something had to be done to rectify the situation, and that something was the destruction of Kazan. On June 16, 1552, Ivan led a huge army out of Moscow with banners waving, drums beating, and the people cheering. They were headed toward Kazan for a final showdown. But news of the Crimean horde attacking the fortress of Tula changed their direction. The citizenry of the town, emboldened by the news of the coming Russian army, fought bravely, with even the women helping out, holding out until Ivan's army arrived, which was just before the Tartars began to retreat. The retreat was so hasty that the Khan, Relet Garay, had to leave behind a large number of heavy artillery pieces, along with a portion of his army's baggage train. With the Crimean Tartars running scared, 
I even ordered the advance on Kazan to continue. With an estimated 140,000 troops, Ivan was ready to rid himself of this band of pesky Tartars. Kazan had 30,000 well-trained soldiers inside the heavenly fortified city and approximately 35,000 horsemen on the outside hiding in the forest of Arsk, ready to provide hit-and-run attacks on the Russian forces. The troops arrived near Kazan and began to hunker down for a long stay. These were no ordinary troops harassing the Russians, but crack cavalry, trained in the Mongol way along with improved weapons supplied by their Turkic brethren. Something I haven't mentioned previously is that the Tartars were now fully assimilated into the Muslim religion. This was to both help and hinder Moscow in the future, especially when looking for allies. Bulwarks were being constructed to prepare for a long siege. Numerous forays by the Kazan Tartars continued for weeks, with troops coming out of the fortified city to harass and slow down the building, building of an encampment around the city by Ivan's army. The Arsk forced, Forest Tartar army continued to harass the army of Moscow as well, which infuriated Ivan and his generals, led by Prince Ivan Mstislavsky, Prince Mikhail Voronsky, Prince Vladimir Voronsky, and Ivan Shermatev the Elder. Mstislavsky, can be told, had an interesting heritage, as his family could not only be traced to Rurik, but also the ancient line of Grand Princes of Lithuania, and to the great conqueror, Genghis Khan. He was a mere 25 at the time of the attack on Hazan, but Ivan had full faith in him. Now it must be noted that Ivan had very little to do with it, neither the planning of the ensuing battle nor the timing of things. Instead, he spent much of his time in prayer in the makeshift tent churches he had set up. Ivan thought that since his power was derived from God, he had a pipeline to God through prayer. We are though to see shortly that this was to lead to grave consequences for Russia. A wall of earthen works were built surrounding Kazan, choking off the city from food supplies, but water was still flowing in from a hidden underground spring, which was eventually discovered by the Tsar's forces, and blown up, depriving the citizens of Kazan of water. The plan from here was to sap under the city walls, blow up the two main towers, which would punch a hole big enough to send in an overwhelming number of troops to destroy everything in sight. The forces inside the fortress communicated with their forest brethren through the use of flags. The Russians used massive drums. Now the biggest problem facing the Russians was not the walls of the city, nor the marauding Tartar cavalry but the dwindling provisions due to the severe rainstorms which the troops blamed on the Tartar witches. To counteract that, Ivan called for a piece of the supposed true cross of Jesus to be brought to the field. Supposedly when it arrived, the skies cleared up and the army was uplifted. But what to do about the need for food? With Prince Yapancha leading the Arsk Forest Tartars, Ivan sent Prince Alexander Gorbati Shuisky out to destroy them. After many indecisive skirmishes, Shuisky succeeded in drawing out the Tartars and routed them decisively. 
He, although ordered to return once securing victory, continued on to the Tartar stronghold of the town of Arsk, where we found rich fields of grain abandoned, along with cattle, honey, and thousands of Russian slaves captured by the Tatars in their many raids on Russian territory. The booty they found was overwhelming, causing their return to be delayed. Ivan was growing impatient and angry when Prince Shuisky's army returned with enough food to feed the army for months. Ivan went into a period of fervent prayer, believing he was the reason for the victory, not the army. Sapping under the walls of Kazan continued when Ivan heard a story that St. Sergius, long dead, was appearing to the people inside the city of Kazan with a broom cleaning the streets saying, I am doing this because soon I shall have many guests here. On the morning of October 2nd, 1552, Ivan awoke, put on his armor and headed to the tent church of St. Sergius and began to pray. According to accounts, as the priest said the words, there shall be one fold and one shepherd, the ground shook due to a massive explosion with the first tower coming down. Minutes later, another equally large explosion occurred, and the second tower collapsed. The assault on the city of Kazan was underway. Russian troops poured into the gaps in the walls. The battle raged on, but Ivan was nowhere to be seen, as he stayed in the church praying. Time and time again, he was urged to come out and help spur on the troops. He kept praying firmly believing that his prayers and his alone could win the day. Finally, he emerged, standing reluctantly, reluctantly near his standard. Ferocious fighting continued throughout the day, but the Tartar cause was lost. The Khan Yedigur Makhmet kept retreating until he and his family were captured. All others in the city were slaughtered. Ivan was sure that it was by his hand that the Tartars were defeated. It is here that Ivan picks up the name of Ivan Grozny, which has been translated into English somewhat incorrectly as Ivan the Terrible. But to the troops who named him, it meant Ivan the Awesome. More good news greeted Ivan on the fields of victory. News that his beloved wife, Anastasia, had given birth to a child, a son and heir, one Dimitri. Ivan now believed that he was the conduit by which God's power flowed. He was the divine power. His power was now supreme. The thoughts going through his mind must have been similar to those running through the mind of an emperor of Rome before him, another Caesar, like Caligula or Nero. Next week, we begin to see how while this victory was groundbreaking and a great event, it also marked a turning point in Ivan's life and personality. Now, for this week in Russian history, August 22nd through the 28th, in 1530, when Tsar Ivan IV, Ivan the Terrible, of Russia was born. In 1689, the treaty Nurchinsk was signed by Russia and the King Empire of China. In 1828, Leo Tolstoy, the great Russian author, was born. 
1941, World War II was going on, and the German troops reached Leningrad, leading to the siege of that city. In 1942, in World War II, it was the beginning of the Battle of Stalingrad, which many say was the turning point of the war. In 1990, Armenia, or Armenia, declares its independence from the Soviet Union. In 1991, Mikhail Gorbachev resigns as the head of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, and on the same day, Ukraine declared itself independent from the Soviet Union. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please visit the websites at russianrulers.podhoster.com. Remember, no www in the front. And you have markshouse.com. Follow us on Facebook at Russian Rulers History Podcast. Please ask a question, make a suggestion, leave a comment. And as always, das vidanya и спасибо большое.